Hey, that's fun. Normally, I feel like I don't usually get a, a response when I say that. Uh, hey, so it must be a good morning. Uh, welcome again to Resurrection City Church. Uh, my name is Julie, and I am one of the pastors here. Um, and yeah, a special welcome to you if you're new or just visiting with us today. We're really glad that you're here. We're always excited when we can uh, have new family and friends join us for worship in, on Sundays. So, all right, so Joel kind of gave this away a little bit already, but like he said, we are still kind of working through this little mini-series we're doing um, just on why church, right? Why would you get up early on a Sunday morning when it's cold and come here, right? Why do you spend your time volunteering? Uh, why do you go to community group during the week? Our, our community groups are just kind of like our um, time for people to gather during the week, have Bible study, pray for one another, that kind of thing. Uh, why would you do that? Why would you give up your time? Why would you think about inviting somebody else to come join you on a Sunday morning? So we're going to look at all of that stuff today, um, and then Joel's going to kind of wrap that up next week for us. And today we're going to look at a passage in the book of Hebrews to talk about this. And, uh, and then as we do that, I'm going to kind of, we're going to work through the passage, and I'm going to tackle some of the reasons that we often give for not wanting to go to church, right? Um, and I understand that this is a little bit weird. I want to give a, a few disclaimers, one of them being, I know that this is my job <laughs> to be here on Sundays. And so it might feel, or it could feel, a little bit like salesperson-esque for me to be like, here's why you should come to church. Uh, but I want you to know that that's really not our intention at all. The reason that we want to talk about this is because we really see a lot of value in doing church. We think that it's part of God's design uh, for us to flourish and for us to really live in community with him and with others. And so I, I want you to know that I'm not doing this just for my own benefit. I really think it's important for all of us. Um, and then I also want you to not feel uh, anything like shame or guilt in talking about this because, trust me, if, I, if this wasn't my job, if I didn't have to, you know, be here, I totally feel all the same temptations to not come on a Sunday morning, right? Like, I've been there. I totally get it. So I really don't want you to feel anything like that as we talk through some of these reasons about why to come to church or maybe why we sometimes don't come. And the second disclaimer I want to give is um, some of you may be thinking, like, yes, church, I get it, but church isn't just a building, right? Church isn't just Sundays. And actually, you're totally right. I 100% agree with you on that one. Uh, the church is actually just the people of God, right? It's not about being in a specific building at a specific time. Uh, it clearly doesn't actually matter if you're in a church building because we are in a school right now. So uh, I definitely don't think any of those things. I think that uh, the people of God can meet in a variety of different ways. But we do see a lot of value in coming together to worship God uh, in the way that we do. And so I'm going to talk more about that. But I, I just wanted to give that disclaimer. Yes, I know church isn't just about Sunday morning. Uh, but I do think it's an important aspect of what we do. Okay, so like I said, we're going to look in the book of Hebrews today. And I'm excited because I love the book of Hebrews. If you've ever read through it, it reads a little bit differently than some of the other uh, books in the New Testament. So that's just the second half of the Bible. And that's because a lot of people think that Hebrews is actually more of a, uh, given more as a sermon or a talk than it was like written as a letter, like some of those other books in the New Testament. And so if you read through it, it does a lot of big theological, gives a lot of big theological points. It ties a lot of pieces um, from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible together. But then throughout it, it kind of gives these little bursts of application. So that can be the part that kind of feels a little bit more like a sermon. 
And the part that we're going to look at today is actually one of those spots of application. And so I'm going to be taking application from the application. So hopefully it's just doubly applicable to all of you today. Uh, so we're going to be looking at Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. It says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Okay, so if you look back, this passage, or this part, starts with a therefore. And again, this, like, this letter of Hebrews is more of a sermon, so you really kind of have to follow the whole train of thought to kind of jump in and pick up where you are. So if you think about the big picture of Hebrews, uh, the big idea that they're trying to get across is basically why you should worship Jesus. It talks about how Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of all God's promises, and how worshiping him is therefore better than worshiping Right, fill in the blank. He gives lots of different examples throughout the, the book. It's better than worshiping angels. It's better than worshiping the law. It's better than worshiping the temple. Pretty much anything you can think of, he talks about it. And so the reason that the author is focused uh, on here, why Jesus is better or why worshiping him is better, is that he makes a way for us to be in right relationship with God. So I mentioned again that Hebrews ties together a lot of things from the beginning of the story of the Bible to the end of it to kind of help make this coherent story and tell this picture of what God has been doing. So we're going to do a little bit of that before we jump into the application part because I really want us to understand what it is the point that they're making application off of. Does that make sense, right? It's the whole like, if there's a therefore, you have to ask what it's Therefore, I know it's cheesy, but it's actually a good uh, way of reading scripture. You should be asking yourself that question. So we're going to walk through a little bit of how that idea of right relationship with God works throughout the Bible. So it starts out that we're created to be in relationship with God. So in the very beginning, the, the very first human beings, Adam and Eve, they had that with God, right? They could hang out with him. They were face-to-face. -face. They were in totally right relationship with him, right? They could, in, in Genesis, when it talks about it, kind of talks about this idea of them, like, walking in the garden together. They were just hanging out. They could be together one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, and if any of you have ever been in a long-distance relationship or if you have friends or family that live far away, you know that there's just something different about being able to talk and hang out with someone face-to-face. -face. It's great that we have texting and calling and video chatting and all the different things that we can do to keep in touch with people, but there's just something about being able to be in the same room as someone and to be able to have a conversation, be able to see their body language, to be able to interact in a different way that is just, it, it allows for a deeper connection than you can just get through like long-distance type of connection. And so Adam and Eve actually had that, right? They had this beautiful relationship with God. But not far into the story, unfortunately, they put their own desire for power and for knowledge over their desire to worship and to be in relationship with God. And because of their sin, 
humanity no longer has this option, right? We don't have the ability to be face-to-face with God. So they're kicked out of the garden uh, where God was, so the place where God dwelled, they're no longer allowed to be in. And there's these divine creatures that kind of guard the entrance so that they can't get back in. And now God doesn't kick them out because he doesn't like them anymore or he's mad at them or he's punishing them. He actually really grieves the fact that he can't be in relationship with them anymore. But the fact is, is that God is holy. He has this holiness about him that now humankind doesn't have anymore. They have sin. And God's holiness and humanity's sin, they just can't mix. It's like oil and water. They can't be in the same space. And so God has to separate it. And as I was thinking about this idea, I was thinking about how foreign the idea is to us that like we can't have something accessible to us. Right? We just have our phones in our pockets. If we want to know something, we can pull it out. If we like need something or if we need to connect with somebody, it's so easy for us to do that. Uh, and I was thinking about how even like really famous or important people, we don't always feel that distance between us and them as much as I feel like we used to because now we like follow them on Instagram and we feel like that we're their friends because we know what they're up to and like, I don't know, there's all these ways that we just feel like everything is more accessible to us. Uh, And I think, especially in America, we just want that. That's something that we like. And I was thinking about how even like, you know, the president's security, like, they're pretty discreet, or just security in general, at least in the movies. I don't know, maybe this isn't how it is in real life. But in the movies, right, like they wear all black and they're just kind of hanging out in the background, right? Like you don't really notice that they're there until they're needed, until someone needs to say like, hey, actually you can't go up to that person. Um, And I think that's because we like this idea of accessibility. We like to feel like we can be close to anybody um, or we could do anything. But then I was thinking about how It's actually not that way in England, or at least, again, I've never been, but it seems that way, right? You got the Queen's Guard who wear those, like, really ornate outfits, and they have those giant hats, and I kind of got sucked down a rabbit hole of learning about them because this is what I do, Um, but did you know the hats are actually made out of real bear fur, and they're 18 inches tall? I just, like, I can't even imagine keeping that on my head and not tipping over, Um, but anyways, I was thinking about how In England, they're there to protect the queen, right? Or to separate you from the royal family, kind of. And I don't know why or the history exactly of how this all got started, but I was thinking about how different it is that there's this like symbol, right? It's very clear that you are not a part of the royal family because there's these guards that have these big hats and outfits and they kind of walk around really stiffly, uh, and then, I was, again, I got sucked down a rabbit hole, you guys. I was watching some YouTube videos of, like, people trying to talk to them or, like, getting too close, and they'll, like, yell at you and say, like, make way for the Queen's Guard and, like, get back. And so they have more, there's more of this, like, symbol uh, that reminds you that you are separated, right? Like, you don't, you're not a part of the royal family. You can't just decide that you're now a part of the royal family, Well, apparently you can decide that you are no longer a part of the royal family. Um, But yeah, it's like a symbol that shows this separation. And I think that when I was thinking about those divine creatures that guard the way back to God uh, in this garden situation, I was thinking about the Queen's Guard. So if that's a helpful image for you, if that helps remind you, um, it's just like a symbol, again, that our sin separates us from God's holiness. We can't just decide on our own, I'm going to be holy now, I can be a part of this. Uh, But there needs to be something else. 
And so through all of this, God still wants to be in right relationship with us. And so he has a plan to restore that relationship through Jesus. But in the meantime, between Adam and Eve and when Jesus comes on the scene, he sets up a system so that people can still have uh, his presence near them um, and he can still sort of be connected to them. Uh, And so it kind of holds place in the meantime. And so this is called the sacrificial system. Again, if you read through that first half of the Bible, you'll learn more about it. Uh, And then there's a tabernacle or temple where within that there's something called the Holy of Holies. And that's supposed to be the place where God dwells, where his presence is. And this system is set up so that once a year there are these sacrifices that can be made that sort of mitigate sin temporarily. And someone can enter into the Holy of Holies and be in that place of God's presence that place where God dwells. So they didn't have the same access that Adam and Eve did uh, when sin entered the world. But like I said, God still desired to have a more full relationship with his people. But he had to deal with that sin, right? He had to deal with that thing that separates us from his holiness. And that's where Jesus comes in. Jesus comes to earth. He lives a perfect life, something that none of us have been able to do because of sin. And then he dies, becoming the perfect sacrifice for all of our sins, past, present, future. So he makes a way so that we can be in that holy of holies, so we can have access to God in a more direct way. And in doing that, he becomes that ultimate fulfillment, right? I talked about how in Hebrews there's a lot of this, how Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises. And when we believe in him, that gives us access to the holy of holies, to God's presence, So through Christ's death, he gives us a way to be in right relationship with God again. And that's where this this, uh, section of Hebrews picks up. So we're going to, well, I'm going to read it again. But it says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, and that's definitely a, a call to the holy of holies, the place where God dwells, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. So again, when we believe in Jesus, that takes care of the sin in us and gives us access to God again, right? There's no more separation, no more need for the queen's guard. We have access to the place where God dwells. And then he gives us some more um, pieces of application. What should we do then? Because that's true. So he says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promises faithful, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. So just quite simply put, why do we meet? Why church? Why do we do this? We meet because of what Jesus has done for us, plain and simple. Because Jesus made a way for us to have right relationship with with God again, We draw near to God. And one of the ways that we do that is through church on Sundays uh, and also through other ways that we gather during the week, like community group and other things. So again, main point, why do we meet? Why do we have church? Because of what Jesus has done for us. And then the author of Hebrews, like I said, makes these three application points. So you get, anytime you see let us, that's kind of the, the cue that he's giving an application point. So the three lettuces. I tried to come up with a better way to say that so it didn't sound like I was saying lettuce, but there's just not a better way. So the three lettuces are uh, let us draw near to God, 
let us hold on to our hope, and let us encourage and challenge one another. So I kind of paraphrased a little bit, but those are kind of the three things that the author of Hebrews wants us to do because of what Jesus has done for us, as a response to what God has done. So the first one is to draw near to God. So we have that accessibility now, right? And I know that when you're first uh, given access to something, it can feel really exciting, right? You're like, oh my gosh, I have something I didn't have before. I'm going to take advantage of it all the time. Uh, One of the things I think people do often around this time of year is you get a gym membership, right? And you're like, yes, I can go to the gym whenever I want. I don't have to like wait for somebody else to give me a guest pass or whatever it is. I can just go whenever, anytime. A lot of them are open 24-7. Uh, And you're just so excited about it. So in the beginning, you go fairly frequently. And then as the year goes on, we all know what happens, and you kind of drop off, right? It's less exciting, and you kind of start to take advantage, or you start to take it for granted that you have access to this thing. Some people even forget and then pay for gym memberships for years and years, right? I think that's how these places stay open. Um, But because we can go whenever we want, we push it down the road. I'll go next week. I'll I'll go when work slows down. I'll go when things, I don't know, fill in the blank. You just pick something, and then you kind of kick the can down the road. And I think that happens sometimes to us when it comes to drawing near to God. Drawing near to God is a privilege, and it's a privilege to be able to do it with other people. But a lot of times, the reason that we don't go, so this is the first reason I kind of want to tackle as reasons why we don't go, is because we just don't feel up to it, right? And there are reasonable reasons not to come, right? If you're sick, Please stay home. (laughs) We do not need to spread germs anymore around. Uh, We've all, I talked to several people before church, and we've all been sick in the last, like, three weeks. So, right, there are reasonable reasons to not come when you're not feeling up for it. But sometimes we don't come because we're just tired or we're stressed or we feel like we need a break. And I think in those cases, going to church can actually be a lot like going to the gym. You might not want to go, or you might not feel up for going, but hopefully you'll feel better when you get back, right? It's that, like, you might be more tired, but it's this, like, energized tiredness. Do you know what I'm talking about? When you exercise and you're like, man, I am tired still, but, like, I feel good, right? Before you were just tired, but now you're energized tired. I don't understand it, but it's true. <laughs> uh, and I think that going to church can hopefully be like that too, right? It's not something necessarily that we feel like we want to do, but it can really help us in the long run. It's one of those things where in the short term, it may not feel fun, but in the long run, we know that it can be better. And I think that with that, sometimes there are really times when you are stressed or you're just going through a hard thing, and getting here and getting to church can feel really hard, or it can feel like you just really don't want to come because you're not feeling up for it in that way. But I think even then, I want church and I I want our community to be a place that's a refuge, a place where you can have a a hard time and people are going to come around you and support you. Because if we're founded on the idea that we were separated from God by our sin, but because of Christ, we now have access to it, then it shouldn't be surprising to any of us when some of us are stuck in sin or have been sinned against by others and are having a hard time because of that. This is the very idea that we're founded on. And a few months ago, um, I was getting tea before church, and someone else, who has given me permission to share this story, uh, was also getting coffee. And when I asked her how she was, she told me that it had just been a rough morning. On the drive to church, she'd been talking with a family member who she didn't have a great relationship with, uh, and the conversation hadn't gone very well. 
she felt hurt by some of the things that were going on and in general just made the morning really not the, a great morning and she really didn't want to be here, right? She didn't really want to be surrounded by other people. She told me she actually thought about turning her car around and driving back home and just not coming in at all. But the thing she said next to me really stuck with me. And I don't remember exactly what it was, but she said something about the fact that when she thought about it, uh, and she thought about the fact that Jesus didn't come for those who have it all together, but he came for the hurting uh, and the people who are struggling. And so this being here at church was actually the perfect place for her to be in that morning. And I thought, that, that is it, right? Like, that's the theology that we should have about the church. And not just the theology, but how we should actually live and how we should actually view it. A church that hears Jesus' words in Mark 2, 17, when he says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And a church that not only thinks, well, that's a nice idea, but actually lives as if that's true. A church that comes around people who are struggling and a place that can be a place where people feel like they can still come, even if they are in a difficult place. And that's the whole point, right? Like I said, that's the idea that we're founded on. We're founded on the idea that Jesus has made a way for us even when we didn't deserve it, even when we're struggling, even when we're sick. And he made it a place that we can draw near to God. So the first point of application is just let's take advantage of that privilege. Don't let it become something we just take for granted and push down the road. So draw near to God as a community. And the second application point that he gives us is verse 23. He says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. So let's hold on to our hope. And as I was thinking about this, uh, the thing that kind of came to my mind was, let's hold on to our hope even when culture says otherwise. Uh, I did a little bit of research. I know Joel shared some statistics from the Pew Research Center last week, but I did a little research on millennials and their church attendance, okay? And they are defining millennials as anyone born between 1981 and 1996. And this is what the results were. 22% uh, attend church weekly, 13% attend once or twice a month, 22% a few times a year, 20% seldom, and 22% never. So you can see it's actually pretty split evenly throughout those different categories. Um, but it just really highlights the fact that going to church, especially among younger people, is not necessarily the norm anymore. And I think some people get really nervous about that fact. They get really scared of like, oh no, what's going to happen? But I actually think it's a good opportunity for us. I think it can be a positive thing. Uh, but I think it's something we need to remember, right? It's going to get weirder. It's going to stand out more and be more strange that we attend church. I was recently talking to a friend who goes to another church, and she was telling me how she had, uh, you know, there's two new neighbors that had just moved in. It's a younger couple, and so they had them over to their house. And one of them kind of got on this rant about all the things he didn't like about church and how stupid it was, et cetera, and then kind of stopped himself and realized, like, well, maybe I shouldn't say these things with people I don't know yet. Uh, maybe I should have waited to get a sense of, of, you know, who these people are. And their spouse was like, oh, don't worry about it. Like, they're young. They probably don't go to church. <laughs> and the, gave my friend this opportunity to say, well, actually we do. Uh, but let's talk. I'd love to hear more of, like, what you think about it. Um, and so I think it's something that we're going to have to, it's just going to be a reality, right? There's not going to be as many people who attend church. Uh, but I think that that really gives us a unique opportunity to hold on to our hope and to share it with others. Uh, so I've been reading a book called Reappearing Church. It's by Mark Sayers. And uh, he really talks a lot about this. 
Uh, in the beginning of the book, he talks a little bit about why other people or what other people think or what they're believing instead of maybe believing in God and in um, Christianity. He talks about how right now there's this religious-like belief that a lot of people, especially younger people, have that as time goes on, as we continue making progress as a society, uh, that things will just get better, right? We'll be able to kind of reach almost this utopia-like state if we just keep making progress. If we can just make progress in the arts and in business and science, philosophy, eventually we'll get it right. Eventually everything will be okay. We'll live in a world that takes better care of our planet. We'll have less discrimination. We'll cure more diseases. We'll have less poverty, right? It's just a matter of time and progress. And there's some truth to that, right? We have grown as a society in many areas. Science has advanced. We've been able to come up with better treatments and cures for certain things. Uh, there's a lot of people who've done incredible work to decrease poverty or discrimination in certain areas. But the problem is, is that as much as that has happened, there are just as many people out there kind of working in the opposite direction. The last few years especially, it's not hard to see how our world is suffering in a lot of different ways. And for every step forward, there seems to be at least one step, if not two steps backward. Sayers gives some examples of this in his book. He says, it's not just at the macro level that this secular myth of progress is being challenged. Our private worlds are in crisis too. We see the rise of anxiety and mental health disorders, falling IQ levels, epidemic loneliness and social disconnection, widespread online bullying, and the persistence of discrimination, bigotry, and hatred. In the West, poor mental health is now normative among emerging generations, and life expectancy in the West's two most powerful nations, the United States and the United Kingdom, has fallen for the last three years running. And I think this reality can really shake people. People I've talked to who do kind of fall into that belief, whether consciously or unconsciously, that as long as we just keep working towards making things better, things will be okay, right? As long as we get the right people in office, as long as we get everybody on board with certain ideas. When you start to ask questions and kind of push on it a little bit, like, do you really think all people are good mostly? Or do you really think the world is progressing? You kind of point out different things that maybe show otherwise they falter a little bit, right? It's a little bit scary to think about when that's your belief, that just we just need more progress. When you point out the ways that we're not progressing, it can make them question things a little bit. And so what do we do? I don't think the answer is to stop trying to make progress, right? I think that's important. But I think the thing that people are missing is that progress isn't going to happen without God's presence. We need to have God's presence transform our lives, the lives of the people around us, and the lives of our community in order for any real progress to happen or any real progress to last. So how does this connect to church? Directly, right? We're talking about drawing near to the presence of God. The church has something to offer that the culture is missing. And I think the culture is starting to feel that lack in some areas. And so this gives us a really unique chance to share the hope that we profess, right? Not to throw it out and say, well, everybody else is starting to not believe in this, so it must not be true, right? We feel that pressure from other people around us. But to say, no, we actually have the thing that could help make things pro like progress in a way that is lasting and has real change and can help people, right? We need God's presence to come forward in our own lives and to continue advancing in the kingdom for anything to really happen. So hold on to the faith that you profess, even when other people around you aren't. And think about how you might be able to share that faith with others around you.
the church really has a lot to offer, and especially, you know, some of those things that uh, Mark Sayers listed about loneliness and people needing purpose, right? We have things to offer in that realm when it comes to the church. So hold on to your faith. Hold on to your hope. And then lastly, the third lettuce is uh, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. I love the little shade that they throw in there. Uh, but encouraging one another, right? So we're, uh, this is not a passive thing, right? Coming to church is not just like, a, oh yeah, I just show up, I receive, and then I leave. And that's what it means for me to draw near to the presence of God. This seems to be a very active thing. Spurring one another on, that word spur, like, that's like, you know, the spurs you have on boots that you like, I don't know much about riding horses, that you use to get horses to move forward, right? It's something that is, uh, it's not comfortable, but it's effective, and it's something that encourages one another to keep moving. So I think another reason that you often hear from people about why they don't want to come to church uh, is, well, it won't matter if I'm not there, right? No one will notice. Uh, People don't actually care if I'm gone. I can just listen to a podcast or read my Bible on my own. It's basically the same thing. So in response to that, A, people do actually notice. Uh, People come and talk to me and ask me, like, oh, where's so-and-so today? As if I keep all of your calendars in my head, which, sadly, I often know where you are. So apparently I do. Um, (laughs) Starting a church is kind of like uh, being a mom in some ways, I think. Um, But people really do notice. They care, right? They want to know where you are when you're not here. Uh, And I think it'd be helpful for all of us, maybe as a little small piece of application, if we reached out to the people who are gone uh, and and told them that, right? Like, hey, where were you? I missed you. How are you doing? What's going on? And B, in a response to the idea of like, well, I can just listen to a podcast on my own or read my Bible. Um, Sure, you can do that. That's fine. That's all good stuff. But should that be all that there is? God clearly designed the church, the people of God, to function in a certain way. And the author of Hebrews makes that very clear. If you read through the whole book, there are several examples where he points out this is a a community thing. This is not just you and Jesus. This is something we do all together. In chapter 3, verse 12, he says, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you uh, are to be found falling short. Chapter 12, 15, See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God, and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble or defile many. The passage I read earlier today, there are actually more. I trimmed it down to just these four. But notice the we language, right? The responsibility that's placed on the community, not just on the individual, to draw near to God. This is the way that God designed us to work, right? He put us in community with one another. This is how we do our best. This is how we flourish, is by helping one another, spurring one another on, and encouraging one another. And that means you have something to contribute, right? The community needs you, and it won't function properly without you. And here's where I often hear things like, it can be tempting to think things along the lines of, well, nobody's doing that for me, so why should I do that for them? Right? Nobody's reaching out to me, so why should I reach out to them? And I know that some people have had really bad experiences at church. 
where they haven't felt welcomed or they've just been excluded in some way. And that really breaks my heart because that's not how the church is designed to be. And I don't want to diminish that at all. And if you ever feel that way at Res City, please come talk to me because that is not the culture we want to create here. But I also know that sometimes in my own experience, uh, sometimes when I think about friendships and I think about like, man, this person's really not trying as hard as I am, or I just really feel like I'm doing all the work here, you know, maybe this person doesn't care. I've found that I think we tend to uh, use what psychologists call the fundamental attribution error. Anybody's heard of that? It's basically this idea that like, when I'm not reaching out to my friends or when I'm not being the person to initiate, it's because I'm going through a really hard time, right? Like I'm sick or I'm struggling. I just don't have the capacity right now. It's just not an option. But when they're not reaching out to me and when they're not being the ones to initiate or really like carry their half of the relationship, it's probably just because they don't care about me or they're just a jerk or you know, they have, they've found new friends and they don't wanna be friends with me anymore. See how we do that? We tend to, when it's us, it's a legitimate reason and, and it's okay, but when it's other people, we tend to put negative things uh, attached to their reasoning. And I've really found as I've looked back at my life that that's just not the case most of the time. If there's a friend that I don't feel like is initiating or reaching out, later I've often found out it's because they were going through something really hard. And if I had stopped being annoyed or frustrated or thinking about myself, I could have actually maybe been there for them. I could have supported them, encouraged them, challenged them, like the book of Hebrews calls me to. But I was so focused on myself that I didn't even bother to think about asking them how they were doing and maybe taking that extra time to initiate more and carry that weight for a little bit of time. So if you're feeling that way, I would encourage you to maybe think about that. I don't ever want you to be in a relationship where it's totally one-sided and it's unfair and you're, you know, really being taken advantage of. But I do want us to be a community that cares about one another and that's willing to take that extra step to reach out to find out what's going on and to be the people to encourage and challenge and support them when they need it. So our community needs you. It needs your unique gifts and talents. So please don't give up meeting together, but encourage one another and challenge one another as you can. So as we wrap up, I just want to summarize the points related to this double application that we sort of had from the book of Hebrews and then also from uh, the sermon. But the first one is just take advantage of drawing near to God, right? Don't let it go to waste. Don't let it become so normal that you don't want to uh, draw near to the holiest God that we have access to. It's this incredible thing that Jesus had made a way for us to do. Uh, And it it can become normal. It can become something we push down the road. But don't let it. Take advantage of that. Secondly, don't be afraid to share your hope, right? This is a great opportunity for us. The fact that, you know, when you go to work on Monday and people ask you, what'd you do this weekend? If you say you went to church, that that might be weird or strange or people might have questions about it. That's a great end to be able to have those conversations with them, to be able to hold on to our hope and to share it with others uh, as we do it. And then lastly, just actively be a part of the community right? This community really does need you, and it wants you to be a part of it, um, even when it maybe you don't feel like you have anything to offer. So be there for one another, encourage one another, challenge one another. We are going to shift now to a time of response, uh, and part of that response is communion. So we take communion every week, and it's actually a perfect time to reflect on what Christ has done in order to make our relationship with God right again. 
It's a great reminder of the fact that we can draw near to the holiest God. And so we, when we take communion, we take time to think about what Jesus suffered and what he went through in order to make it so that we can do that. So we're going to move into this time where we're going to be singing, um, and then at any point through that, you can come up and take communion if you'd like. We just ask that you're a follower of Jesus. And then another way that you can uh, respond is by giving. So we have giving in the back, um, and then also through prayer. So if you would like to be prayed for by anyone, this is a great chance to like take that active step to be a part of the community. Uh, we'd love for you to take advantage of that as well. So I'm going to have the worship team come back up, and I'm going to pray, and then we're going to enter into that time of response. Father, we thank you that you created us to be in relationship with you, and that even though we sin against you and we push you away, you love us so much that you sent your son to die for us, to make a way for us to be in right relationship with you again. And we confess that we take this truth for granted, and we forget how much of an opportunity it is to draw near to you and to do it both as individuals, but also as a church community. So Lord, we just pray that you would make your presence known to us through our personal lives and through our lives um, as we leave this place and out into the world. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.